I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm here with Robert Trug, a professor of medical ethics, anesthesiology, and pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, and a senior associate in critical care medicine at Children's Hospital Boston. Dr. Trug has written a perspective article about the evolution of medical ethics and the doctor-patient relationship as part of the celebration of the journal's 200th anniversary. Dr. Trug, let's begin where your article ends, with the question of the physician's responsibilities with regard to whole populations and health systems. If making the U.S. healthcare system sustainable requires a greater focus on restraining spending, should ensuring justice and an equitable distribution of services and resources be part of the individual physician's job? Well, Stephen, uh, yes. I think that as much as many of us are uncomfortable with that, I think it should be part of the physician's job. And, you know, um, a lot of people think about this as being kind of a division of labor, where on the one hand, questions about allocation and rationing should be handled at the level of public policy through laws, regulations, guidelines, that sort of thing but that when it comes to decisions about individual patients, the rule has been that we should not ration at the bedside. And I think that there is a lot of wisdom in that. Um, we don't want cowboy physicians you know, making ad hoc decisions uh, with a great deal of variability at the bedside. That would be a, a bad thing. But as helpful as that is, I think like, like many simple solutions, it really is too simple. And when you think about um, uh, laws and regulations, they can be very blunt when applied to an individual patient. And I think that there still has to be some room, lots of room really, for clinical judgment in allocating decisions, even at the bedside. There's a, um, a story that uh, comes to mind for me about this that uh, really made the point for me. It was a story that was told to me by an emergency medicine physician a few years ago. And he talked about a patient who came in uh, with headaches that appeared to be simple tension headaches. And the patient was demanding a CT scan. And the physician said, uh, you know, I'm not gonna do that. That's not a wise use of this expensive resource. And he was really holding his ground. And then the patient said to him, well, you know, my brother died a week ago from a brain tumor. And it started just like this for him with headaches. I've been out of my mind with anxiety for the last few weeks. I haven't been able to sleep. I haven't been able to work. I just, you know, don't know how I'm going to go forward. And, you know, the physician said, oh, well, that changes my mind. I mean, it does seem to me like it's reasonable in this case, for us to, to do this and, and help you to get on with your life. And I think, you know, that's what I, what I mean when I think that there does need to be some room for, for individual judgment um, and that guidelines and regulations and those sorts of things, while very important for allocation and rationing, are, are not the whole story. So how do or how does an individual physician balance uh, the social responsibility to the healthcare system as a whole to that ethical responsibility to act for the good of his or her patient? Well, you know, that's a very good question. And I think the place to begin, really, is that if you look at surveys of physicians, generally more than 90% will say that they have no role at all in allocation or choosing between patients or in rationing. They 
believe in their heart of hearts that they give every patient all that they need without limitation. Um, and I think that that just doesn't reflect reality. I think it really reflects more the way we would hope it was. I'm thinking, you know, back a few years ago when we got our first MRI scanner at my hospital. And suddenly we had a number of patients in the intensive care unit uh, where an MRI would really be a better study for them. But we didn't have access to the scanner at the level we needed. And so we would go around and we would say, well, you know, for this patient in this circumstance, a CT scan is good enough, even if it's not the best study. And for the select few, we were able to give them an MRI. Now, really what we were doing was rationing at the bedside. We were using our clinical judgment to decide who got what, choosing between patients. But we didn't want to call it that. I don't think many of us would have called it that. We would have talked about it as, as just sort of using our common sense. But when you, when you recognize that those kinds of things are just a part of everyday practice, you know, for any physician, how much time are you going to spend with one patient versus another? These are the kinds of choices that people are making every day. And when you realize that what's going on is you're really allocating your time, your resources, hospital resources between patients, then I think we, have, we, we bring some transparency and clarity to it. And that's an important first step for us beginning to think about how to do it better and how to do it at the highest uh, ethical level. Many of the most hotly debated clinical ethical issues revolve around the end of life, uh, things like DN. DNR orders, advanced directives, physician-assisted suicide, declaring death for organ donation. But what are some of the more charged questions that arise in clinical care earlier in life? What do you see, what are you called to consult on in the hospital? Well, you know, um, that's an interesting question for me because uh, I've been doing intensive care medicine now for about 25 years, and my interest in ethics came out of the intensive care unit. And I was fascinated by those big-ticket items that you mentioned, uh, DNR orders, advanced directives, you know, when, when do we withdraw the ventilator, philosophical questions like is killing different than allowing to die, is withdrawing different than withholding. Uh, and I think many of us who uh, are involved in medical ethics love these questions. They're fascinating. Um, but as I've, as I've grown older, I've seen that there, there's a downside to viewing ethics through that lens as well because you, be, you, you lose sight of the fact that there's uh, a lot to ethics that isn't this life-and-death decision-making stuff. You know, I think about... Um, I think about somebody sitting in an office and talking with a patient about whether they should get PSA screening or whether they should have a mammogram. Or, you know, there's a new drug maybe for their arthritis that might help them, but that might also have really bad side effects. We tend to talk about this as teaching communication skills, but I think it's much deeper than that. If you look at those conversations, they're packed with ethical issues and ethical choices how the alternatives are framed, the various words that are used, um, you know, the way that we use statistics. You could say, you know, this new drug has a 20% chance of maybe making your arthritis better. It also has a 50% chance of having some serious side effects. The way that those options are presented, to me, are ethical choices. 
and, uh, and are important, and we don't spend enough time thinking about them and practicing them. You know, I th- many physicians will, will say, and I think uh, accurately, that they can lead a patient to almost any decision that they want by the way that they have the conversation. And I think that that's true. What we need to recognize is that there's ethical issues there. Um, When you do that, are you ethically persuading a patient in ways that are really uh, furthering that patient's health and, and, and preferences? Or when do you cross the line and when are you manipulating the patient into choices that are really not going to be the right ones for them. So uh, to me, this is something of the cutting edge in, in the world of bioethics is uh, we, we've done the, the well-tilled ground of uh, the, the, big, the big ticket items, and we need to now start paying more attention to the ethics of everyday practice. In that regard, one aspect of clinical ethics that's been in the news lately is privacy or confidentiality, given particularly the move toward sharing and transparency of patient information in electronic health records. For example, there are questions about whether the protections that were put in place early in the AIDS epidemic to help HIV-positive patients avoid stigma are now interfering with care and prevention efforts. How heavily do you weigh confidentiality in matters of clinical ethics? Well, the AIDS epidemic certainly did raise our sensitivities around privacy and confidentiality, and um, in a very important way because, uh, of course, the stigmatization that went along with that diagnosis um, was was terrible for for many of those patients. Um, Privacy is is a value that many people hold very highly, obviously, in and of itself. I think that there's something of a generational issue here. If you look at at younger younger kids today, you know, uh, and, and look at the private information that they're willing to put on their Facebook pages and 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 share widely, uh, and even in the you know when I teach uh, the medical students in the medical school, I find they're much less concerned about privacy and confidentiality than than my generation is. But it's still very important. And I think is, um, you know, the lessons that we learned from the AIDS epidemic are likely going to come back to us with even greater urgency uh, as the genomics revolution progresses and as increasingly um, personal genetic information is going to be a part of a medical person's record. And how do we prevent uh, the the stigmatization and, and the discrimination that we we learned from the AIDS epidemic, but now is going to be present for, for many, many things. And uh, so I think uh, we are going to have to pay attention to that, and that is going to be a big topic moving forward. You, you suggest uh, that doctors and patients, in fact, discuss ethical issues in when they discuss, for example, PSA screening or uh, mammography. How do doctors actually learn about medical ethics? You know, I, I've, uh, I've been teaching uh, ethics in the medical school now for, for a long time. And uh, when I'm critical of it, as, as, as I'm becoming, um, it's, it's, it's really criticism directed at my own biases in this regard. Um, I, I have taught medical ethics in the way that I think probably it is taught at most medical schools, which is... Um, starting off, at least, as a branch of moral philosophy and, and dealing at a fairly abstract and theoretical level 
about uh, about ethical issues. And I feel that um, for most of our students, I think we're missing the mark. Of course, our students are very bright, and they find philosophical ethics to be very interesting in and of itself. But if you think about what they really need when they move into the wards and into practice, uh, in order to be able to, to work with patients ethically and professionally on an everyday basis, um, I think what we're teaching in medical ethics is not that relevant. And um, you know, I think thinking about the conversations that we have with patients and families, thinking about the way that we treat each other, the words that we use, um, the way that we communicate with each other, I think is, is much more relevant and I think is the direction that sort of ethics education in medical schools needs to be moving. And from the patient's side, what do patients need to know about medical ethics and how should they learn it? Wow, what should, what should patients know about medical ethics? Um, not a way I've, I've often thought of framing the question. I guess a couple of things come to mind for me. One is uh, for patients to um, know what they can expect of us uh, first, and then also I think um, maybe an appreciation of what, dare I say it, what patients owe us. On the, on the what they can expect from us side, um, I think that they certainly should expect to be treated respectfully, um, and that is a big problem today, and also to expect that we will be open, honest, and transparent with them. You know, one place where uh, I'm really seeing changes is in how we talk with patients and families about medical errors, for example. Ten years ago, uh, we would rarely tell families when a medical error occurred. We would leave it up to them to figure it out on their own. And this has been an, an area where uh, things have really turned 180 degrees. Um, we uh, now sit down with families, and we believe that we have an obligation to talk with them about medical mistakes, even if it doesn't uh, affect a change in their care. And, and uh, I mean, yesterday in the intensive care unit, I did this. We had a, a medication error, and, and I sat down uh, with the parents of a child and, and talked about what happened. Even though it didn't uh, have any permanent uh, adverse event for, for that patient, um, I believe, and I think it's generally believed now, that this is something we owe them. And I think, and I think that this family really appreciated it. On the other hand, um, again, I, I say this with a, with a little bit of trepidation. It's not very politically correct, but I do think that patients owe us some things. And um, one is, is a problem that we in the medical profession have really helped to create, which is the perfectionism that we've built around ourselves. And I think patients need to understand that we are human, that uh, we are well-intended, but our performance often does not come up to the standards that we would like. And, and sometimes we frankly do make mistakes. And um, we're doing our best, and I think um, not to hold us to standards of perfection is, is I think, something that, that families do owe us. What sorts of clinical ethical questions arise when U.S. physicians engage in global health efforts? Over the past uh, several years, we've seen uh, a lot greater interest among U.S. physicians in going abroad and doing medicine abroad, and I, um, I think it's a wonderful thing. And part of that is because of the opportunities that we've had. Um, I, I, I had an opportunity to, to go to Haiti for a few weeks after the earthquake, and 
for me, it was absolutely a life-changing experience, as I, I, I know it was for many of my colleagues who went. From an, from an ethical perspective, I think one of the biggest challenges is the almost impossibility of moving away from some of our deeply entrenched ethical norms and ethical comfort zone, if you will. And it, to, to give an example that, that I saw when I was in Haiti, um, we were dealing with a, a limited number of ventilators. And we would frequently see patients who were completely salvageable, who were going to do very well, but they might need that ventilator for a week or two in order to get there. And on the other hand, we had a lot of patients who were getting surgery, particularly for orthopedic injuries after the earthquake, where they did need some post-operative ventilation, but often for only maybe a few hours or a day or two at most. And you know, if you do the math, it made a lot more sense to use the ventilators for these patients who were going to be able to quickly turn over and, and get off the ventilator in a relatively short period of time. And uh, speaking for myself, and I know others that I was working with, we were, we were really paralyzed by this issue because it was almost impossible for us to withhold a life-saving treatment from somebody just because they were going to need it for a little bit longer than somebody else. And so what I saw, I mean, despite, you know, despite good theoretical reasons for not doing it this way, what most of us did was fall back on a first-come, first-serve kind of ethical approach because to do otherwise was just ethically unbearable. And um, so we've had many conversations about this in the, in the couple of years since. And as much as we sit around and we talk about how ethics should change under pandemic circumstances, I think the biggest barrier is that when placed on the ground, faced with the situations, many of us are going to find this impossible to do. Finally, what do you see in the future of medical ethics? What sorts of new ethical issues, for example, uh, in biotechnology, genetics, other ongoing developments in medical science are going to be facing us in the years ahead. Well, you're sort of asking me, um, you know, to look into a crystal ball here and think about what the what the big issues are going to be going forward. And um, I, I, I wouldn't put a lot of uh, uh, confidence necessarily in, in in what I have to say about this. But if if a young person were to come up to me today and say, "I'm really interested in being a bioethicist," and where do you think I ought to be looking? Um, my response would be in the area of neuroethics, the uh, changes that are happening in a couple of areas. Um, one has to do with neural enhancement um, as a general issue, uh, particularly around medications that are being developed now. You know, uh, at a very basic level, college students are experimenting a lot with stimulant drugs like Adderall ways to enhance their cognitive functioning uh, in a stressful environment. The military is using these. I think it, it is at a very uh, elementary level so far. But um, as we get better at developing these drugs, and surely we will, uh, we're going to be facing very much the same set of issues that uh, uh, professional sports is facing now around um, performance-enhancing drugs like steroids. And when is it okay to do it? Uh, if it's wrong, why is it wrong? If it is wrong, how do you stop people from doing it? How do you evaluate performance when people are using these technologies? And I think it's going to go beyond just pharmacology. 
Uh, you know, most of us have gotten now pretty dependent upon carrying a computer in our pocket in the form, you know, our iPhone or our Android. And, uh, you know, I can say that, um, I mean, for me, it's, it's, a, it's an extension of my brain at this point. I depend on it for certain parts of my cognitive functioning. And in, uh, in years to come, I think the, the link between technologies like that and our brains are going to become tighter and tighter. And where do we draw the lines and, and, and how do we ethically view uh, having our brains enhanced in these pharmacological and technical ways, I think is going to have a lot of interesting ethical implications. The other, the other way that I think it's going to affect how we think um, will, will come out of the evolving field of neuroscience in general. You know, uh, we're just at the beginning of being able to look at functional MRI and what's going on in people's brains when they think about ethical dilemmas. And the data is at a very early stage, but it's going to bring us back to many of these age-old philosophical questions around whether there is anything such as free will, um, or is it all determinism? How much are each of us really personally responsible for the ethical choices we make, and how much of them are hardwired? What, is going to, uh, what are the implications of that for how we think about rewarding people for good behavior or punishing them for bad behavior? Um, I think the next 10 or 20 years is going to just open up a Pandora's box of questions like these, and I think they're going to be at the forefront of, of what we're doing in bioethics. Thank you, Dr. Truk.